Good morning, everyone. Before I read the Bible, I need to pick on someone. Um, Greg. Greg, can I have your phone, please? Uh, no, 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 you can keep it locked. That's fine. Okay, thank you. Okay, so I have a phone here. What, uh, iPhone 12? It's, a, it's an iPhone of some description. It's very nice. Very nice. Um, okay, so we kind of work our lives around these little things, don't we? Um, <laughs> no, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, I should say, increasingly, <laughs> increasingly, people are working their, uh, working their lives around these little things, right? So in 2013, there was a study done on how often people uh, check their phone, just, oh, check it, put it back in. And in, in 2013, the study found that people check their phone 110 times a day. And it was like, really? As many as 110 times a day? The same study was repeated last year and found that now the average rate is between 300 and 400 times a day. So that's something like every five minutes. People are getting their phone out, checking it, put it back again. So these, these have become very important in, uh, in everyday life, in communication, in business, and all these kind of things. And, and to be honest, I mean, I'm just going to take the, phone, the case off. Forgive me. I mean, just take a minute to look at this thing. I mean, this case is really on there. Look at this craftsmanship, right? Look at how well this is put together, this camera. I mean, it's a beautiful piece of kit, isn't it? Pardon? Even the Apple skeptics have to admit that this is very nice architecturally. I mean, it, it looks amazing. It's very useful. It does all the things we need. Now, Greg, what, what I'm going to do now, I hope you don't mind, is I'm going to chuck this <laughs> against the wall and smash it into a 1,000 pieces. Is that OK? Okay. <laughs> Were you scared for a second? Okay. Okay. Well, Greg, you can have your phone back. What is the picture? Is it? Oh, it's. There's going to be some uh, South Africa, of course. Okay. The reason I've done that is because when we read the chapter we're about to read, Luke 21, this is exactly what Jesus does to his followers. Okay, so I'm not going to read the whole passage and then we're going to um, kind of break it down. What I'm going to do is we are going to work through this passage verse by verse. Once we understand what Jesus is saying to his audience in context, what we're then going to do is ask the question, what do we do with that? What does that mean for us? Okay, so Luke 21, starting in verse 5. Andy kind of set me up nicely for this last week, so let me finish off what he set up for me. Some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. So he's there holding it up. The Matthew and Mark tell us that he's on the Mount of Olives, so they've got the, the temple in clear view, and they can see the beautiful, ornate gold and marble on it. And, the, and they say... Look at how beautiful this is. Look at the architecture on that thing. How blessed are we to have God's temple? Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on top of another. Every one of them will be thrown down. The temple, the place where every Jew's life 
is worked around, the, the central part in their life and culture, the place where God has come to commune with them, this beautiful building that they are blessed and privileged to have in their midst, Jesus just looks at it and goes, yeah, by the way, it's coming down. Like me just saying in front of all these people, oh, Greg, I'm going to chuck your phone against the wall and turn it into a thousand pieces. It's a shock to hear that. That's not the thing that someone normally says. And so unsurprisingly, teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they're about to take place? That's a fairly obvious follow-up question, really. You say it's all going to be destroyed. When? Jesus replies, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Okay, so Jesus warns them that before this event happens, before the temple is destroyed, there are going to be wars, earthquakes, famines, all these kind of things. And I'm just going to jump ahead for, the, for one second. But in verse 32, Jesus tells us, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So Jesus sets a limit on when this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. Now, I actually have a little map for us. A map of all the wars, earthquakes, and famines that are recorded in the period between Jesus' prophecy and before the time when this generation passed away. Now, as you can see, it's all over the Mediterranean. But notice that there is one place where all of these things are centralized. In Israel itself, where Jesus spoke, where he warns them. And as you read the book of Acts, just notice how many times it talks about there being a famine or being an earthquake or them hearing of wars. This period was marked by the exact same things that Jesus said it would be marked by. There were wars, earthquakes, and famines all over the place. But, Jesus says, the end will not come right away. Before all this, carrying on in verse 12, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors and on account of my name, so you will bear testimony to me. Make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Again, we go to the book of Acts, and we find this is exactly the things that happen to those who call themselves Jesus' followers. The book of Acts takes a big turn towards the end, and it becomes a prison narrative because Paul is arrested and thrown in prison for doing these exact things, for standing firm and following Christ. We see Jesus' followers taken before governors and synagogues and put in prison and so on and so forth. But we see them standing firm and trusting the words that God's given them. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you know that its desolation is near. Jesus is now specifically not just prophesying how Jerusalem will fall, how the temple is going to be destroyed. Uh, sorry, he's not just saying uh, that it will, but saying now how it will be. And he's saying that it's by an army coming in to invade and destroy. And indeed, this is what happened. So to give you a brief history lesson, 
uh, as you'd imagine, and we see it in the New Testament, the Jews did not like being under Roman rule. It was against who they were as God's people to have a pagan nation ruling over them and they are regulating their worship of Yahweh. The Jews were holding on to the promises in the scriptures that they would be free of Gentile control. And so they weren't a big fan. Now, in, in 64 AD, so we're talking about 34 years after Jesus died and rose, there was a man uh, called Bi- Simon by Kazibah, and he proclaimed himself as the Messiah. And he gathered a following, and these people were called zealots, and they raged against Rome. And so in 66, the Roman army came in and began their siege of Jerusalem. And it lasted for four years, ending in 70 AD. And so Jerusalem was surrounded by armies. They were under siege for four years. But Jesus gives a, uh, a warning, and, a, and an enc- not an encouragement, he gives a, a, a flee command to the Christians who are there. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that is written. It's interesting that this, um, this verse appears here. Because, do you remember back in Luke 4, ages ago, if you've, if you've been a part of our church for a few years, two years ago I think we preached on this, Jesus is there in the synagogue, and he stands up and he's given the scroll to read from Isaiah 61, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the captives, to proclaim sight to the blind, so on and so forth. And he ends it in Luke by saying, and to announce the year of the Lord's favor. And then it cuts there. Why is that so interesting? It's interesting because in Isaiah 61, there's a fuller sentence. It says, to announce the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. And when, Luke, when Jesus reads from that, he cuts off that half. And so a hearer might say, where's the day of vengeance? Exactly here. This is what Jesus has just said. For this is the... It's a, the translation's kind of knocked it out a little bit, but this is in fulfillment of all that's been written. This is the time of punishment. That is the exact phrase from Isaiah 61. Now it's coming to bear. And on the point about people fleeing from the city, that again, this is exactly what happened in history. All the Christians in Jerusalem in 64 AD, just as this was all kicking off, fled from the city. And they fled to a place called Pella in the Mediterranean. This is reported from historians at the time. So indeed, the people did heed Jesus' warning. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, there's there's two things in here. The first thing he says, notice that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. The scope of what he is prophesying is very clear here. It began with that question of... When's this temple going to be destroyed? And all the way through, he is answering that question and now saying, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the Gentiles. Now, there's that funny phrase, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What does that mean? When are the times of the Gentiles? You might think that it means uh, that God kind of has a plan for the Gentiles, and then once he's done with them, he returns to Israel. Or you might think it means that uh, Perhaps this is the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. You might have absolutely no idea what's going on. Fair enough. You could be in any of those camps. What does this mean? 
In the book of Daniel, which is also a not particularly easy to understand book of the Bible, but in the book of Daniel, there is a prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. And uh, Phil, I'm sorry to pick on you. Could you be a statue for me quickly? Thanks. Could you, could you stand here? This, uh, imagine for a moment that Phil is not a living being. He's actually a statue. He has a head of gold. He has a chest of bronze. He has legs of iron. And he has feet made of iron and clay. You can see it, right? See it with the eye of your mind. Golden head. We're going to call you Phil Goldenhead from now on. <laughs> and Daniel tells us that this, in, this, in this vision, these represent four empires that are going to rise on the earth. And then Daniel says, but there is a stone that is cut by no human hand by God that's going to come and it's going to destroy the feet and the, and the statue is going to topple. And in those days, Daniel said, God will set up a kingdom which no other kingdom will be able to beat. And it will grow from a tiny stone into a mountain that's going to fill the earth. And then Daniel says these four parts, the head, the body, the legs, the feet, are different empires. Okay, now again, a bit of a history lesson. The head represents... The Babylonian Empire, the people that came and took Israel into captivity. The body represents the Persian, the Persian Empire, who were the ones who let them go free. The legs represent the Greek Empire that's going to arise later. And the feet of iron and clay represent the Roman Empire. And it says, in the days of the fourth kingdom, God will set up a kingdom. So, again, I appreciate that it's a bit complicated. But the point in Daniel is, when God's kingdom comes, it comes during the reign of the fourth kingdom. Thank you, Phil. So, there's going to be all these different kingdoms, these great kingdoms that are going to dominate Israel, but God will bring his kingdom during the reign of the fourth. Now, which empire is covering the world when Jesus comes on the scene? You can shout out. The Roman Empire, the days of the fourth kingdom are there. And Daniel refers to this period of these Gentile domination as the time of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles end when God's kingdom arrives. So if we just come back to this, I appreciate this is a bit complicated. Just bear with. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Is a way of saying that period, that time that Daniel prophesied where uh, God's people are constantly under threat and domination by Gentile forces... That is coming to an end as the temple is destroyed. And, and from that point on, the freedom that God has promised after that prophecy in another chapter in Daniel, Daniel 9, that's going to then happen. So Jesus is simply saying that the times of the Gentiles are done when the temple is gone. That, that period that you've been on for the last 450 years is done when this happens. Hope you're still with me. Let's carry on. Jesus then says, There will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Now, sorry to stop again, but again, this is imagery taken from the Old Testament. In Isaiah 13, Isaiah prophesies that Babylon is going to fall. It's going to be destroyed. Now, Babylon is basically a very big city, and its destruction would leave things going on all over the world because it was so central. And in Isaiah, it says, Babylon will be destroyed, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven. Now, when Babylon fell, the literal 
moon and the sky, the literal sun, the literal stars, they didn't change. This is prophetic, symbolic language to talk about the upheaval that comes about from this destruction. So when Jesus says this here, we shouldn't expect that he is speaking in any way other than how Isaiah and Joel and Daniel and so on and so forth have spoken in the past. We're not actually looking in the sky to see signs. We're saying, what does this signify? How does this prophetic language operate? So in other words, this is going to be a big upheaval when this happens. People will faint from terror, apprehensive on what is coming upon the whole world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now, this is where we're going to have to pause a little bit. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. What does that mean? See, the whole time, Jesus has been answering that question of when's the temple going to be destroyed. And so far, everything he said just perfectly matches. This is a point where we start to go, how does this relate to Jerusalem being destroyed? And, and you might think, because we, we, we know the New Testament, we know that Jesus is coming back, that this is talking about Jesus' second coming. It says the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. This is really important that we understand this. The phrase, the Son of Man coming on the clouds, can anyone tell me where that comes from? I think I heard a few people remembering Daniel 7. Daniel 7. Okay, we need to understand what's going on in Daniel if we're going to understand this phrase. Let me, let me explain why. If I, say, was watching a, a, um, a news report, some partisan news network talking about uh, Boris Johnson's lies, and they said, and here he goes lying again, it just goes to prove that a leopard can't change its spots. What would you think if they then had a zoologist on to confirm, biologically, leopards do not change their spots? It'd be strange, right? What does a leopard can't change its spots mean? Pardon? Yeah, people don't change. There's a phrase that means people don't change. It's actually not about leopards at all. Or uh, one from uh, my childhood. When, bear in mind, there were five kids in our house, so every now and again, my mum would, you know, we'd get, we'd get her to her limit. And she used to say, I'm about to hit the roof. And I remember one particular occasion where my oldest brother, Benji, who's five years older than me, significantly taller than all of us, he was tall enough at this point that he could touch the roof. And I remember mum saying to us, I'm going to hit the roof. And he went, I can do it. <laughs> and it was hilarious. I must have been about six at the time. Thinking, ah. It was so funny because the one thing my mum did not mean was that she was actually going to hit the roof. Yeah? So phrases cause us to say, what is that referring to in its context? Yeah? In Daniel chapter 7, it's not about someone coming on clouds to do something. It's a prophecy, a picture, and, and Daniel says to the angel that shows him the prophecy, what does this mean? And the angel explains, well, this is what the picture means. And he says this, that God's people will be taken before the, the presence of God and vindicated before the nations, and they will be given dominion and power and glory. And the way that that's symbolized is a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven to the presence of God. So the son of man coming on the clouds does not mean a person flying on clouds. It means the time when God's people are vindicated before their enemies. 
Does that make sense? So when Jesus were to say this, these are first century Jews. They would not go, well, obviously you're talking about the second coming. They can't even get their heads around the fact that Jesus is going to die and rise again. They know what this means because they know the scriptures that Jesus commonly uses in his ministry. And Daniel 7 is the most commonly used one. So you are going to see the point, he tells them, when God's people are vindicated before the Gentiles. Why does he say that in the context of the temple being destroyed? Again, read the book of Acts. Who are the people who are bent on persecuting the Christian church? The Pharisees and the temple um, party. When Paul wants to get permission to go and drag Christians away and throw them into prison, he goes to the temple and he speaks to them and says, please can I have permission? And they say, yes, please go. This is the capital of Christian persecution. So when the temple is destroyed, when God deals judgment there, this is very much God's people being vindicated. They are being shown before the people who have been persecuting them, we are God's people, we are in the right. And so when these things take place, stand up and lift your heads because you know your redemption is drawing near. What good news that would be for them. And then he told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves that you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. Okay, let's just hear from Jesus again. He doesn't say some of these things are going to take place, but there's some things which are yet future before this generation passes away. He says, this generation, these people who I'm speaking to, will not pass away until all of these things have taken place. So let's just recap. Starts with Jesus looking at the temple. That's going to come down. They say, when? It ends with Jesus saying, this is all going to happen within a generation. And everything in that gap is referring to that prophecy. The reason I'm laboring this is because so often this is approached as though this is some future message which hasn't happened yet that we basically need to batten down the hatches and prepare for because there's going to be nations rising against nations and earthquakes and famines and so on and so forth. Those things might happen. There may be wars. There may be earthquakes. There may be famines. But they are not rooted in this prophecy. This prophecy is specific to something that happened in between 66 and 70 AD just as Jesus is prophesying here. You have to approach the text with the assumption that it means something else to find that. It's not in the passage. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Now, what do we do with it then? Is it just like, well, it's good to know the history? I think there's something a bit more than that. And I think one of the reasons why so many people refuse to see this in the context that it's in is because for most of our theology, we only really care about going to heaven when we die. How do I get there? And the story of God's people and the story of redemption is kind of irrelevant to us. We don't really care if the temple got destroyed or not. And I think that's a real shame on us because God has given us lots and lots and lots of story. He's not just given us instructions. It's not like the first sin happened and then God sent Jesus and then Jesus died on the cross and now everyone going to heaven. There is a story that God has invited us into, and we should know that story. And part of that story is the temple, the place where God came to dwell 
with his people so that he could be in their midst, so that they could approach him, so that they could know that they're right with him, so that they could testify to the nations, hey, God is here, come in. Now, when you get to the Gospels, when Jesus is walking and talking around Israel, what does he do? He acts in a way that only the temple can act. So, there's a man who's paralyzed. And Jesus says to him, do you want to be healed? Yeah, of course I do. Your sins are forgiven. Why is that so radical? There's two reasons. One is, there is only one person who can forgive sins, and that is God. Two, there is only one place you can go to have your sins forgiven, and that's the temple. Jesus brings the temple to everyone that he interacts with. Jesus brings the presence of God. Jesus brings the peace that comes from God to everyone that he goes to. And in Jesus, what God is doing is he is giving the new and improved, upgraded temple, which makes this old building now obsolete. Let's go back to the phone analogy. Greg, you probably care for your phone, don't you? Make sure it's okay. I mean, as I say, we check it about 300 to 400 times a day. You probably don't want it to get broken. You probably don't want me to chuck it against the wall. But if I came along and gave you the latest version, the latest upgrade, the new one that's just come out, suddenly that old one loses a lot of its value. In fact, another statistic to, for you. Bear in mind, there are 52 million adults in the UK. There are an average of 85 million unused smartphones in the United Kingdom. That means that per adult, we have 1.5 smartphones which are fully working in a drawer somewhere. Did you know that? Those ones which used to be so valuable have now lost their value because, well, the new one's here, the better one, the one that can do more than what my old one could do. So when Jesus comes on the scene, the temple, merely by his presence, suddenly becomes obsolete. And it's often said that, well, Jesus has to deal with the temple because it's become a point of idolatry, because it's become an idol for them, which is true. But even if they had accepted Jesus wholeheartedly, even if they said, you are the Messiah, come in, we have you as king, the temple would still need to come down. It doesn't belong anymore. The upgrade is here. And so it's either going to be a group project where we take down each brick or God's going to come in judgment and the Romans are going to destroy it. Jesus' mere presence makes it a stack of bricks that has no place anymore. It's Jesus or the temple. But there's more. Because when Jesus ascends, what do we do then? Jesus ascends and pulls out his spirit. Paul calls the spirit most times the spirit of Christ. And he says that we've been filled with the Spirit of Christ. And so, when we turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 6, for instance, I think we've got the words on the, on the screen. Paul says this, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. 
Therefore, come out of them and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. What Paul is saying is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, dwells in you, which means that we, as a body, are the temple of God. But can you see the difference? We are not a building that people have to come to if they want to meet with God. We are temples on legs. We can bring the presence of God to everyone who we interact with. Jesus says that you have the power to forgive someone's sins. Not because you have the power, but because the Spirit of God dwells in you and therefore God's tabernacling presence, his, his temple presence is in you and you are able to bring the temple wherever you go. This is a much better building, a much better temple, a much better stack of bricks. Peter calls us living stones. Jack read for us from Ephesians 2 where it says, You all are being knitted together as one temple for the household of God. The point there is, this old building, as important as it has been, as central as it has been, is no longer fit for purpose. God has something better. And we don't just say, oh, that's good. We say, how do I rise to that challenge of being the temple of God? God considered it this important to deal with the temple that Jesus stands here and gives us one of the longest prophecies we have in the Bible. Because he was making the point, this is significant. If this building comes down, God must be doing something big. And he is. He's working on you and on me to be the temple of God. We don't emigrate to Jerusalem. We bring God's presence to wherever it's needed. We gather together as the temple. New Testament talks about us uh, coming together as the temple of God. And then in the next verse, it talks about us being the priests of God in the temple. And then, this is in Peter, by the way, in 1 Peter 2. He then says, and then we offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Everything about the temple is fulfilled in a believer being filled with the Holy Spirit. We are the building, we are the priests, we are the sacrifices, and we come before God and we say, use us in your service. Let me be the temple wherever you need it. We need to grasp this stuff because we lose the sense of our own worth if we forget it, and we lose the sense of our calling if we forget it. Your worth is, Paul says to them, you are the temple of God. God has seen it fit to dwell in a building of gold and marble that everyone looks at and goes, wow, that's amazing. And he says, that is not as good as you being filled with the Spirit of God. But then the challenge is that God says, you've got my Spirit. Go. Do temple stuff. Be the temple. And then he speaks to us as a group and he says, hey guys, you're the temple. Let's do some temple stuff. Why is it so important to understand Jesus' prophecy? Because if we don't, we don't understand who we are. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that... You were vindicated. Lord, we thank you that um, your prophecy was true 
and accurate, that we can look at it and say, truly everything that you spoke came to pass. But more than that, Lord, we thank you for what, what happened because of that. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have made us the temple of the God. And Lord, we pray that you would empower us to rise to that calling. To not grow comfortable and say, oh, well, I'm the temple. But to challenge ourselves. What unclean thing can we touch? How are we polluting ourselves? Lord, we just want to repent of all the times that we've failed to do that. And come to you and say, Lord, cleanse us afresh. Cleanse your temple. Send us out. Bring your dwelling presence to everyone who needs it. May we be a light 